Welcome to the Monsters of Fantasy. This was written, produced, recorded, and edited by me, Sean McCarter. Monsters of Fantasy is a production in which I will explore the truly horrific side of the fantasy world known as Dungeons and Dragons. There are content warnings in the show notes below. Episode 12 The Mummy Hello, everyone. It is the final day for the parade in Vloron. Everyone is all dressed up as their favorite undead monster, and, well, everyone aside from Daisy, so... After I finish up with this entry, I think we'll all be using the teleportation circle that we have to go have a night on the town. Well, so Nico promises, and, because this entry was chosen by yours truly, I must say, I'm just in a good mood today. I chose this undead monster as it was the last undead I faced back in my adventuring days, I was traveling down to Rakir with an old friend of mine to see her off. On the way, we happened to have a run-in with a mummy. The fight wasn't anything like the story I'll be sharing with you today, but it was a memorable one. However, this is not Kezvar's social hour, is it? I want to go enjoy the festivities, so let's get this started. Story taken by Bryn and how his party got lost in one of the ancient temples of Rakir. I mean, how far back do I go, really? These people have been with me through thick and thin. They aren't like my brothers and sisters. They are my brothers and sisters. We are family. We've been in an adventuring party ever since we were kids. So I can't begin to even explain the complexities of our group. No, I'll just tell you what you need to know to understand everything. I'm the biggest of the group. Being a half-Goliath and all that, it gave me a position of strength and durability. One that I bear proudly. That's how it's always been since we were little kids. If anyone tried messing with my friends, I would... Well, I wouldn't fight them, honestly. I was a bit shy, but... Just my massive size did scare away most other children. Except Lana. She was a headstrong, or still is, a headstrong, curious halfling woman. Who, even as a child, was not scared of me like most other kids. And actually, she was kind to me and was my first real friend. Of course, this made us stand out like outcasts in the orphanage, two comically different pairs, but that never really bothered her. She would still go and explore and talk to or fight whoever the hell she wanted. Being friends with her is the reason I ever picked up a sword and did all this adventuring stuff anyway. It was to make sure her dumbass didn't get hurt while doing it. And before I knew it, she did the same thing with a rather lonely kid named Mandrake. I'll admit it, I hadn't noticed him before, always hidden in our small library behind a mountain of books. He wasn't outgoing like we were or anything, and we only ran into him because Lana was climbing up on my shoulders inside the library. I don't even remember why, I think she was trying to sneak into the kitchen, maybe steal some pancakes for breakfast? Inevitably though, she slipped and fell, and fell on top of Mandrake. By the time we had all the books cleaned up and apologized... Lana's bubbly personality already took effect. That's how we got such a powerful arcane user like him in our group now. While he never did any of that official learning, Mandrake is incredibly smart and learned all those wizard spells without having to go to some big, fancy, and expensive school. And last is Catelyn. Catelyn is, uh, was our guiding light through everything. The peace and the calm. She was the last to join our group. One day, Lana fell from a tree. 
It wasn't even a bad fall or anything. She just scraped her knees and was bleeding a little bit. But come running from the tree line was the small platinum-haired girl clutching a tiny pendant of the moon. She ran over panicked and for the first time of many, healed up Lana's injury. She became a knowledge cleric to Salune later on in life, the moon god or something. She got a tattoo of the emblem, though, right between her shoulder blades. It was of two eyes, opened wide, surrounded by seven symmetrical stars, and, no matter where you stood in the room, the eyes would follow you. So that's how we all came to meet and is a very brief history of how the group The Fantastical Four was founded. I didn't come up with that name or anything, Mandrake did. It was one afternoon after we managed to survive an encounter with a few wyverns. Lana had plummeted a couple hundred feet during that fight, and just before she hit the ground, Mandrake had pulled out a feather and saved her life. Lana kept on for the entire night saying how fantastic the fight was, and that we were fantastic, and eventually, just to tease Lana, Mandrake called us the Fantastical Four. On this particular morning, the Fantastical Four had been visited by our old friend Yanto. He's a secret dealer in the magical and rare items, and truthfully, if he hasn't made himself known to you, I've said too much already. It's just that we owed him a favor, and it was time that our favor was due. We were camping out in the Dodre Hills bordering our two nations, and while standing on top of those rolling hills, I looked far to the north past the expanse of grass. I could see a rising smoke cloud from Little Point. Then, to the south of the hills, the slopes evened out, and the plains of grass turned to rough, textured dirt, spotted with smaller greenery. And eventually that turned into the wasteland known as the Deserts of Rakir. When we saw Yanto in his nightmare apparate at the foot of the hill we were on, Catelyn knew immediately it was time we paid back the price of the stones we were carrying. Two months prior, Yanto let us borrow a pair of magical items called Sending Stones. Aside from a small arcane sigil on the other side of both of them, they looked like regular rocks. Except if you held one to your lips and finished the phrase with over, then it would translate it to the other rock. No matter the plane of existence, it would work. Mandrake had tried copying and studying the enchantment before Yanto returned. That was the whole reason we borrowed it in the first place. Mandrake was so sure he could pull it off, but just like Yanto promised, all of his stuff was a one-of-a-kind, and Mandrake failed to copy the enchantment. The best we could manage was one message a day, but to our knowledge, the ones that he gave us were limitless. So instead, when he came to collect payment for them, we gladly offered our services instead of trying to source together 6,000 gold. Yanto said this was fine, of course. He had always had a way of collecting what was owed. He told us that he heard of a rumor from a friend of a friend that an ancient tabaxi priest of some sorts had been buried in one of the pyramids of Rakir and hadn't yet been looted. This was very believable as the ancient pyramids stood tall even 3,000 years ago when our kingdom was established. Hell, there were some adventurers that spent their lives trying to find them in the vast wilderness, buried by years of sand being blown around because if they found just one treasure room, they would be set for life. Yanto told us he and associate had found it, and that they were positive it was trapped and guarded by ancient magic. This is where Yanto and his associate, though, seemed to always stop, never actually getting into danger, just, just lurking on the outskirts of it, just enough to profit off of it, but not enough to actually get hurt. Instead, he sent groups like us, either on the hunt for adventure, 
or just as a means to make gold. The trip there wasn't too difficult, because to be frank, it was a deserted desert. Aside from a group of travelers we spotted in the distance on the main road during our second day, we didn't see more than a few scorpions and lizards. It took us four days of walking to get there, during which both Catlin and Lana complained the entire time. And while we didn't run into any monsters, walking through sifting and moving sand that will blister your bare skin, while the sun beats down on you persistently is not pleasant. Catelyn's god actually gave her the gift to pull water and food from the heavens. However, she ended up just becoming a glorified water spigot during that trip, replenishing our canteens or cooling us off whenever we needed. We arrived at the site about midway through our fourth day of travel. It wasn't a large pyramid, honestly. The base of it was lined with large limestone bricks and then layered up evenly to tower about 30 or so feet in the air. Looking around, you could see a lot of sand had been dug out and pushed to the side so that the pyramid sat inside this large dirt bowl. From the lip of the bowl, we walked around the entire thing just to make sure there was no other entrances than the obvious one. A large rectangular hole that seemed to be guarded by two statues. The statues were of two tabaxis standing tall, wearing simple cloths and decorative headwear, and in both their hands were spears. After determining that it was indeed the only way in, we slowly climbed down to the center of the bowl. Or rather, I tried doing it slowly, but Mandrake lost his footing about halfway through and began free-falling. Catelyn started sliding to try and catch him, and then they both started free-falling, and Lana... Well, Lana saw what was happening and decided to use her shield to slide the rest of the way down, shouting about how fun it was. I had fallen on my back from laughter and gave up on trying to climb down at that point, and I, too, slid the rest of the way. We were all laughing until she hit one of the stone statues at the base of the tower. We all saw her crash into the statue, but none of us were in any position to stop or help her. I panicked when I saw the statue's mouth start to twist and move, because... In my limited experience, moving statues is never a good thing. Mandrake later explained it was a spell called Magic Mouth, and that there was no need for me to break the statue's head off. Luckily, though, before I decapitated him, Lana had heard its message. It was a warning from whoever helped Yanto find this place. It said that he can sense a strong abjuration magic, and behind that, something necromantic. He warned us that there were two traps up ahead, and then wished us luck. We entered the threshold of darkness, and, almost immediately, Catelyn casted light on my greatsword so I could lead the way and see. The air was cold and dark from the tunnel before me, but we could at least now see thirty or so feet in front of us. We had been in underground hideouts, ancient ruins, hell. Before this mission, we crawled quite literally through a labyrinth. So, to us, we were just entering another dungeon. Those first two traps were just the beginning. First one, Mandrake used an arcane hand to trigger a tripwire. Afterwards, a large, almost comical stone mallet swung out from the ceiling. The next one, I used the weight of my greatsword to trigger a pressure plate. And, immediately afterwards, a volley of arrows ejected from hidden slits in the stone walls. There was a pit trap that we noticed, thanks to my glowing guide, and then, after another 20 minutes of walking past that pit trap, we came past the most complex of them all. A turn. It seems that sprinkled throughout the tomb were dead ends and tunnels meant to disorient whoever was traversing them. They would continue another couple of hundred feet with false corridors amongst false corridors. Now, I may have been leading the group only as a meat shield, but... Mandrake was the brains and told me which way to go, and remembered our exact path out. 
Anytime we reached a dead end, even after five or so previous turns, he'd be able to get us back to the right crossroads. It was after the third trap that sent a volley of arrows that I asked out loud to the group. It was really weird we hadn't come across any monsters of any sorts. Yeah, traps were common, but I thought that these ancient emperors, especially ones that specialized in constructing pyramids, would have had some kind of better security. Hell, some houses in Voron you could probably find a guardian blink dog or something. Lana responded that maybe since this one was a priest that maybe they didn't believe in binding any monsters to protect them? She kind of proposed the question to Catelyn, but she had no answer for it. She, however, seemed to be perplexed with the idea that we had yet seen anything besides traps. No inscriptions, no writing, nothing. She told all of us that she didn't have a great history in temples of Rakir, but this was very odd. Traditionally, the walls leading to the resting place were lined with scriptures or murals. Yes, they were traps down here, but that was for strangers to be kept out. The people who constructed it, or the ones who worshipped it, after all, would still need to go down these pathways to pay homage to their fallen. Some spending lifetimes bringing gifts to the dead. She said the lack of stuff unsettled her, and that it seemed that the temple was almost unfinished or rushed. It was when we came up to a flat stone wall at the end of a particularly long hallway had it seemed like we made any advance in the dungeon. It was a 10 by 10 flat wall of brown stone, and painted in black lettering in the center was an unreadable script, just shapes and blotches that seemed to form a two-line sentence. At first I thought we reached another dead end, but I had to agree even if this wasn't the way we were going, this was the first thing we were given after four hours of carefully moving at a snail's pace. We tried pushing it, we tried saying open, we tried asking nicely. Hell, even Lana at one point tried running straight into the wall, only to bounce off with a bruise between her eyes. We were doing this charade while the wizard, Mandrake, sprinkled powdered substance around his spellbooks. One of them was a white color, the other like a dark black powder. This went on for ten minutes as he spoke arcane words around the book, but at the end of the ritual, a flash of blue light spilled from his skull, and slowly he read what was on the wall. This is not the end, but the beginning to eternity. I groaned and complained aloud at the thought of us not being at the end yet. However, Catelyn just silently walked up to the wall and pressed her fingertips against the text. Death. And as the soft words left her lips, the script began to glow. Dust started coming loose from the ceiling as the wall began to slide down into the earth, immediately hitting us with the cold, dark air that had been trapped for thousands of years. However, it did not smell old or ancient. Actually, it reminded me a bit of Catelyn's cooking. I smelt a mixture of spices as the scent of thyme, lavender, and peppermint slowly drifted out to meet us. The wall opened up into a large circular room. The floor was bare and stone, and aside from a slightly indented circular cutout that was in the center, it was about ten feet across, but only seemed to recess an inch or so. In the center of the stone circle stood a small pillar, about three feet tall. On the top of the pillar, stone claws wrapped around a small black gem. On the ceiling, spaced about every five or so feet, was a burning torch, seemingly arcane as they all burned evenly to illuminate the walls of the chamber, which was covered from floor to ceiling with a painted mural 
and across from me, with a black gem centered in its chest, was this large jackal-headed humanoid. He was sitting on a stone throne and had this long golden staff in his right hand and in his left what looked like a cross. But instead of a straight line coming out of it, it broke into two and formed a circle at the top. He was painted and vibrant in gold and green armors, but it was the rest of the wall that bothered us. This person was painted quite large in relation to the rest of the mural. The rest of it, putting it sparingly, was either a mixture of text and small paintings that told some kind of story that I could not tell. Mandrake was the only one who could read the text, and he still struggled to make sense of what they were trying to say. Whatever it had to be was morbid, though, because all of the pictures depicted a group of tabaxi, uh, worshipping this figure, the large center one, but it also showed them mutilating their own kind. Almost half the wall was used to show them removing organs one after another out of a tabaxi. After what felt like an hour of searching and looking at a way to progress out of this tomb, we gave up and resorted to using some of our higher level arcana. That was because I was rushing them. I'm not good at figuring things out. I'm good at hitting things, and frankly I hadn't been able to really contribute much this day and was getting bored. After Mandrake had done that same little ritual twice more just to keep reading the wall, Catelyn grew frustrated and decided to ask her god what we should do. This wasn't the first time she asked Salune to help us out, but I always hated it. Her god was so cryptic and condescending to us, but that didn't stop Catelyn from setting up her incense and candles right there in the room and start chanting to her god. Eventually, as the chanting mellowed out to a whisper, her tattoos and eyes began to glow. She said out loud, Are we in the right room to continue the treasure we seek? And after a brief moment of silence, she nodded her head in affirmation. Mandrake told her to also ask who or what is this ancient god that these tabaxis worshipped. After a quick reminder about the gods being incredibly short answered, she instead asked if these tabaxis worshipped the god of death. She said yes, but then hesitated, mouth trembling, and then corrected herself with a firm no. She sat there motionless for a moment, her eyebrows furrowing around her glowing eyes. Twisting her mouth to each side, she then asked the last question, a very simple one. And if I succeed? After that, she ended the ritual. She told us that her god made her an offer. She said firmly that whatever this god was, she did not understand it. Her god said it felt like her sister, the god of death, but whatever deity we had on earth was colder, harsher, and more primal than the god of death Salune knew. Catelyn started talking excitedly, saying her god had tasked her with getting to the bottom of this pyramid, quite literally. At which point, Lana frustratingly interrupted, saying that was all fine and dandy, but how do we proceed? She, like me, was starting to get bored in this room and itched for some action. Caitlin then walked over to the center of the room where the onyx gem was resting. She asked Mandrake over to the crystal, and she explained that her god told her to cast a spell that reeked of death to continue. Reading past the crypticness, though, they decided to cast a necromantic spell into the gem and the center of the room. The gem began to glow a faint white aura as a thin line appeared in the center of the large god on the wall, and soon the wall was separating into two, revealing another long, dark hallway. I don't know what came over her, but 
Catelyn ran ahead without us. We started to chase after her down the long hallway at the end, of which we saw a dimly lit room. But as soon as her thin frame crossed into the light, a wall of darkness came crashing down with a loud thud in between us. Now, we didn't panic right away or anything. We instead used the sending stones to get a play-by-play -play situation on the other side. Apparently this room had the same magical enchantments that the previous one had, and all the torches were lit, giving off a heatless flame. The walls were covered in another mural depicting two additional gods. I never got more details than that because she started quickly describing the large sarcophagus that was in the center of the room. She said it had to be ten feet long and three feet wide and was carved from solid gold, but that the carving had artistry and care put into it. She said you could see individual whiskers of the tabaxi that had been carved into it. She said it was carved in a way that made the top look like a tabaxi was resting with its arms crossed while wearing a long, beautiful gown. She then said that there were dozens of vases that lined the wall, but in a symmetrical way. There were four large vases that all stood across from each other. These ones stood four feet tall and were painted jet black with red runes written on them. Between the large vases, though, spaced out in sets of seven, were twenty more vases of varying colors and sizes. After a bit of silence on her end, she announced that most of these contained gold and treasure. She started stammering, trying to fit everything into 25-word segments. Even over sending stones, I could tell she was getting too excited just by her voice. However, Lana asked what she meant by most. She told us that the large black ones just contained ashes, but that they did smell like the strongest spice rack she'd ever come across. Then, more silence. After a minute, we asked back if she found a way out. We could start looting up some of the treasure she had found. It took her a few seconds to respond, but she told us she hadn't found one yet, but that she was going to check around the sarcophagus. Even I told her it wasn't a bright idea, and we all tried arguing that she should find a way to get this side opened up first. She then quickly promised that she wouldn't open it up and would be right back. Then, after about 30 seconds, we heard a loud thud come from inside the chamber. Mandrake started yelling, not even using the sending stone. Lana called over to her through the stone, but no response. They both started beating on and smacking the wall. I then shouted at them both to step back, and with the white, hot, burning rage, I ran into that stone wall. I felt my entire shoulder crunch under my weight, one or two bones definitely shattered, but as I felt the wall give way, I came barreling through to the other side. Now, Catelyn was right about its burial chambers being very beautiful and gorgeous but we only had a second to take in our new dusty surroundings because standing up in its sarcophagus was the remains of this long dead tabaxi. It was covered with rune-scripted bandages, but they had fallen away in several places revealing patches of hairless skin. Its mouth was open to reveal a set of petrified but sharp teeth. It had a singular amulet hanging from its neck, in the center of which an onyx gem rested inside the same symbols we saw during our descent. Its body was extremely frail, even considering its once natural feline grace. No, it was obvious that this was merely stretched flesh hanging onto bone. There were no organs inside this monster. It had one long, thin arm outstretched, and from the ends of its claws, blood was freshly dripping. Standing there completely frozen, 
was Catelyn, our cleric. She had three large gash marks on her cheek, and even though the wound was obviously fresh, her skin went from a warm greenish tone to a sickly gray all around the wound. I shouted for her to move, but she stood there motionless. It extended its other claw towards me, and with a voice that sounded like a thousand insects buzzing at once, it told us to leave. We all quickly broke into action, me towards the mummy, Lana to Catelyn's side, and Mandrake, well Mandrake actually stood there cowering in fear for a few seconds as he too locked eyes with the mummy. Catelyn though, however, snapped out of it and was hastily retreating from the monster. However, before she could get away, it slashed out again, this time opening up her tattoo. I got filled in on that part after we left the temple because, at the time, I was in a one-track state of mind. When I entered that room, I saw that Catelyn's cheek had been split open by this undead abomination, and so I ran screaming to unleash my full might on the mummy. It wasn't until Lana had jumped on my back to stab its eyes that I realized that we weren't actually doing anything to it. It looked so frail and weak, but our blades merely bounced off of its flesh. Sure, there were nicks and marks where we connected, but it didn't crumple and give way like I anticipated. It then reached out and tried clawing Lana across the face, but as she ducked down using me as cover, it dug into my shoulder. I felt something cold seep into my veins, and as its claws pulled themselves out, I felt my entire shoulder go numb. It still felt warm liquid trickling down my back, though. Behind me, Catelyn squealed and told us to all back away. I could see now why. Each of the four large black jars were shaking and piles of ash were starting to flow out, forming into some sort of ghostly apparitions. Now, we were all smart adventurers, so when this started and the closest one to Catelyn slammed her into a wall, breaking a couple of ribs, Lana made the executive decision to get the fuck out of there. None of our attacks were doing anything to hurt the enemy, and most noticeably, the strongest offensive user we have had spent the last 20 or so seconds of this fray staring slack-jawed with piss trickling down his leg. Lana shouted at Catelyn to just grab a few vases that looked like they may be worth something. I, however, got cocky and ripped the amulet that was hanging around the mummy's neck. It did cost me a few extra scars on my back, but I felt like stealing something personal from the bastard. I then picked up Mandrake with my other hand, who was still staring slack-jawed, and started sprinting back up the long hallway. Behind me, both Catelyn and Lana were running, dropping gold coins and jewels along the pathway. After we broke through the chamber, Mandrake woke back up. He immediately noticed we were running away and used his keen mind to lead us back to the top. It took a total of nine minutes of running to make it back outside, and we didn't even stop there. We scrambled our way chaotically until we were up and out of the pit, and then we ran another half mile just to be safe. Considering we spent several hours in there, it was now dark outside, and we ended up setting up camp not too long after. Mandrake and Lana were busy counting their spoils. I think we snagged about 2,000 gold pieces and a, another 600 in gems between the four vases. I had a few scratches, obviously, but we were more worried about Catelyn. It was obvious something happened down there. She had gone pale and the skin around her wounds was now clearly dead and rotting off. She started casting spell after spell, almost exhausting herself trying to fix it, but nothing she did made her condition any better. We let her even down an entire potion, and still nothing. She said that she could probably take care of it in the morning, and just needed to get a night's sleep. 
She was the cleric of the group after all, and we trusted her opinion. We instead just spent the rest of the night trying to tend to her. The best we could do was keep her bandages clean throughout the night. It was during my shift that she passed away. She was calling out something softly underneath her breath. I went over and placed my ear to her lips and the last words she uttered were, thank you, Anubis. I don't know what she meant by it, but as her last breath escaped, a breeze came blowing it away. First a few strands flew in the wind, but I quickly realized the sand that was billowing in the wind was not coming from around Catelyn, but rather coming from Catelyn herself. Beginning from the three gouges on her face, her body began to flake and decay away, becoming one with the sand around her. We tried resurrecting her. Even after our group grew, new friends were met, and the adventures took us to foreign worlds, we always kept our mind on her. And once we were able to cough up the funds for a true resurrection, over 25,000 gold, only to fail. Mandrake says he likes to believe Catelyn's god, Selune, granted her a great boon for finding out something about that weird god down there during the minute she spent alone with the mummy, and that she was having too much fun in her pantheon to come back to us. I let them think that. Well, that was my selection to celebrate the Festival of the Dead. Like I said, I chose this one as one of my best friends, Erythras, was from Rakir, and the camaraderie of this story stirred up old memories of my adventuring days, so this just felt right as our final submission. The Mummy Physiology Now, I'm going to start this by stating the obvious. It's an undead humanoid. However, unlike every other entry, this one is quite special. You see, a mummy is usually created through a very sacred, almost private, ritual. It's not simply the act of killing or even raising someone from the dead. It was an ancient ritual that many priests did thousands of years ago to honor their lives and devote themselves, even in death, to their gods. The ritual involved removing all their organs and placing them into separate jars, bathing the corpses in herbs and spices, and then, lastly, wrapping it with bandages inscribed with arcane runes meant to bind the soul inside. If the ritual is done correctly, you will have an undead humanoid who is now bound to its slumber, only waking when its rest is disturbed. Weaknesses and Resistances Let's just go ahead and get this undead bit out of the way. It's immune to necromancy and poisoning, and it can't be charmed, frightened, or paralyzed. And, just like you guessed it, it does not need to sleep or eat. However, the magic that keeps this corpse animated, and like skeletons, actually protects the mummy from non-magical attacks. Not completely, but that explains why Bren was having a hard time hurting it with a simple greatsword. But I'm willing to bet that Mandrake, had he not been capacitated by the mummy's dreadful glare, which I'll get into in a minute, then this mummy would have been toast. That's because they're susceptible to be lit on fire, and will quickly burn away their skin, destroying the spell that keeps them animate. Anyways, attacks and abilities. I'm putting these together as the mummy isn't a smart creature, so... This isn't some kind of attack or thing it's doing. I think it's just a naturally occurring effect that's a byproduct of the curse. First is its dreadful glare. When locking eyes with a humanoid, it performs a mental assault on its victims, usually implanting images of the person themselves decaying and rotting away. 
This is really only good once, because as soon as you shake it off, you can block it out and not be affected by the creature again. Second is the attack. Now, the mummy will try and hit you like any normal undead would, striking out with its fist or claws. However, the lethality lies in the mummy's curse. It seems to be a byproduct of the magic that keeps the mummy up, and can be transferred when the mummy makes direct contact. The curse will start as a small infection or rot, and during this time you cannot be healed through potions or arcane. Instead, slowly the curse will eat away at your flesh, eventually turning you into dust. Now, it can be cured with a simple remove curse spell or stronger incantations, but it's still a tricky one to deal with. And that brings us an end to this entry. Okay, I'm going to make this quick, as the others are waiting downstairs. I want to say I think Yonto knew there was a deadly encounter at the base of that pyramid. I think this is a man who does not care if the people supplying or buying this merchandise lives or dies. But this is all just conjecture. Nothing has told me myself that Yonto is an evil person. Thank you as we wrap up the month of October and Halloween with the Festival of the Dead. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it with your friends and family and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at MonstersUp underscore for all news and teasers for upcoming episodes. Today's story was inspired by a session I ran in which my players immediately noped out of an encounter with the mummy. Join me next week as we break away from the undead traditions with something completely out of this world. Thank you for listening. Until next time.